On the 28th of May 1937, Neville Chamberlain put on his trademark out-of-fashion wing collar, paired it this time with a top hat instead of his usual bowler hat, and took a car from 10 Downing Street to Buckingham Palace. There, King George VI would ask him to form a government and to be his Prime Minister. The next three years have become synonymous with appeasement. Chamberlain's policy apparently of giving in to all of Hitler's demands in the vain hope that the dictator would be satisfied. Yeah, but look deeper into it and what was going on was a whole lot more astonishing than that. It's good to see you at the History Cafe. Thanks for joining us. This is where we come to give a new take on history. We revisit well-known stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look right anymore. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Rosebank, and I suppose we have the best job in the world. I think we do. We take the latest research and we ask the questions that nobody else seems to, and we put it all into stories everyone can enjoy. So find yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see where we end up. The word appeasement really does no justice to the depth of Europe and America's failure to deal with Hitler's Third Reich. Perhaps this is a moment just to sum up briefly what we've been discovering in this series. At one level, appeasement was a policy of keeping the Soviets out of Europe. A fortnight before his notorious meeting with Hitler at Munich in September 1938 to discuss the fate of Czechoslovakia, Chamberlain wrote to King George VI. He explained that his objective in going to Munich was to establish, quotes, the prospect of Germany and England as the two pillars of European peace and buttresses against communism. Extraordinary. At another level, Hitler's power was the product of profound economic dislocation that had its origins in the Americans' determination to make a profit from the First World War and its aftermath, until it finally drowned its sick European cash cow in hopeless indebtedness. The result was the investment of American companies and British banks in Germany to such an extent that when the inevitable crash came, they were unable to extricate themselves. Germany had been in an extremely weak position. It imported almost all its raw materials. Its financial substructure was shaky, never far from collapse. But Hitler's finance minister, Hjalmar Schacht, skillfully turned these to his advantage. Germany couldn't import without earning foreign currency, and it couldn't do that without finance. It was, he realised, in the interests of American businesses and British banks to keep the German show on the road. He played the currency and tariff game so skillfully that American companies found themselves deeply implicated in German rearmament and British banks in financing it. Now, this intertwining of economic and security problems was new, and neither the government of America nor that of Britain could frame a strategy to manage it. The White House was hopelessly divided between the watchful suspicion of Henry Morgenthau at the Treasury and Secretary of State Cordell Hull's dewy-eyed belief in the power of trade agreements. British foreign policy, meanwhile, was divided among countless competing agencies, all of them hopelessly let down by the failures of British intelligence. The British were also blinded by the unfounded beliefs that fascism was somehow better than Bolshevism, that Schacht was a moderating influence on the Nazis that Hitler was a reasonable man, and that Stalin was not. And also that the Americans knew nothing. President Roosevelt's attempts to negotiate, or even 
enforce European disarmament were routinely scuppered by the British. On one occasion in December 1937, in an attempt to get the British into action, Roosevelt's Hawkeye Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau telephoned the British Foreign Secretary at his country house. When the Englishman came on the line, he informed Morgenthau that, quote, he was at dinner, his soup was getting cold, and he could not send a note to the Prime Minister until the following day. In fact, I think he also told Morgenthau that English people don't do business by telephone. Yeah, it's, it's true. It was a ridiculous example of a persisting British arrogance, a state of mind that has never been able to grasp the real balances of power. Well, in the end, all this came to focus on one man, and Neville Chamberlain was the worst possible choice. Now, this was a politician whose family, something historians often seem to omit to mention, whose family had made enormous profits from the armaments trade. A young MP by the name of David Lloyd George had first pointed this out in the Commons in 1900, in the middle of the Boer War. In 1939, Chamberlain still had over 23,000 shares in the Birmingham Small Arms Company, of which he had been managing director. Other Chamberlain arms companies had been receiving government contracts throughout the 1920s, 21 of them under the Tory government in a single year, 1925 to 26. The Labour government of the year before had given them just one. But then Chamberlain's predecessor, Tory Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin's family, was also in the armaments business. As Prime Minister, he was getting a dividend of 10% and a bonus from the family firm. He also had over £200,000 in shares and connections with Vickers Armstrong, one of the leading armaments manufacturers in the world. Lord Hailsham had also had shares in Vickers Armstrong when he was Tory Minister of War from 1931 to 35. Now, the company denied it was still trading with the Germans, but it was in fact still advertising there through the 1930s. Why does nobody ever mention any of this stuff? In 1939, Chamberlain also had 11,000 shares in ICI, which had taken over one of his family firms, and which by 1939 was a partner of the German chemical conglomerate IG Farben, which was one of the companies, as we keep on seeing, that was most closely entangled with the Nazis. At one point, ICI was accused of selling the very chemicals that IG Farben was using to make poison gas. Notably, John Simon, then a Liberal, got rid of his shares in ICI in 1933 while he was Foreign Secretary, rather than face a conflict of interest. Yeah, by contrast, Chamberlain sent his son to work at ICI. <sighs> well, let's not accuse Chamberlain of using the situation in Europe for personal profit. Oh no, we wouldn't possibly do that, no. But let's agree that he viewed it with the limited mindset of a businessman. It explains a whole lot. It's no wonder that Neville Chamberlain, as a businessman, viewed the Soviet communists with their centrally run economy with horror. According to the historian Jonathan Haslam, the Foreign Office despaired of Chamberlain's, quote, mawkish dread of communism, even the Foreign Office. He notoriously ignored the Foreign Office anyway, believing he was much more qualified to conduct his foreign policy alone. Let's not ignore the fact either that Chamberlain was a man who told the British papers that stories about Nazi atrocities were, quotes, Jewish communist propaganda. 
On the day of the Anschluss, that's Hitler's occupation of Austria in 1938, Chamberlain entertained Hitler's notorious Reichsminister of Foreign Affairs, Joachim von Ribbentrop, to lunch in London. Well, it was obviously a successful occasion. A couple of months later, according to a letter that's now in the University of Birmingham, Chamberlain let his house in London's smart Belgravia to the German Nazi. The letter's dated the 23rd of September 1938. Chamberlain was so shockingly ill-informed, he was carried along by forces he had no idea even existed. You only have to look at who he was getting his advice from. One close confidant, a fellow fly fisherman, was his political adviser, Joseph Ball. Now, Ball was a barrister who joined MI5 during the First World War. He worked with a special unit set up to spy on British socialists, using undercover agents to infiltrate, for example, the Socialist Labour Party, which was much more militant than mainstream Labour. According to the highly respected official historian of British intelligence, Christopher Andrew, Ball may well have had a role in leaking the notoriously forged Zinoviev letter to the Daily Mail in 1924. Yeah, we talked about it last time. Yeah, it won the Tories the election that year. In 1927, Ball was appointed to help run publicity in Tory central office. He was one of its first spin doctors on what would today be the equivalent of a six-figure salary. Nothing new under the sun, huh? Or actually nothing new in the sun. (laughs) Joseph Ball now began to run his own agents, including inserting moles in Labour and Liberal Party headquarters, not unlike the Watergate scandal that many years later would bring President Nixon down. Ball also infiltrated the papers, the BBC and the British film industry, not least by negotiating the selling of knighthoods and other honours. He, of course, fed sympathetic journalists with extra information, the oldest, most time-worn way to turn any journalist's head. As Geoffrey Dawson, the Tory editor of the Times, recalled, quotes, night after night, Ball would be on the line telling Dawson, quotes, to keep out of the paper anything that might have hurt the Germans' susceptibility. Ball even persuaded John Reith, the founding director general of the BBC. And regarded in the days I worked in the BBC as almost a saint, the originator of world broadcasting. Ball even persuaded him to no-platform Winston Churchill, because he was one of Chamberlain's most outspoken critics. Well, no surprise. Back on the 9th of March 1933, four days after the rigged and terrorised elections that had handed Hitler virtually absolute power, Reith had written in his diary, quote, I'm pretty certain that the Nazis will clean things up and put Germany on the way to being a real power in Europe again. According to Reith's diary for the 10th of March 1938, that's just 36 hours before Hitler's annexation of Austria, He told the Nazi Ribbentrop, who of course would soon be living in Neville Chamberlain's house, that if the Führer would send the head of German TV to visit, he, Reith, would fly the swastika from Broadcasting House. Three weeks later, the first transports left Vienna, taking Austrian Jews to Dachau. Meanwhile, Ball was tapping the phone of Anthony Eden, the Deputy Foreign Secretary, another critic of Chamberlain's. Ball was spreading rumours that Eden was gay. From 1937... Ball was also running The Truth, an egregiously misnamed rag that expended its energy defending Hitler and attacking Jews and excoriating MPs who criticised Chamberlain's policy. But no need to worry, Chamberlain had another confidant. He was Sir Horace Wilson. Now, Wilson was supposedly head of the Home Civil Service, but in fact he was the Prime Minister's private strategist. Wilson knew nothing and generously shared his ignorance with Chamberlain. (laughs) (laughs) Very kind. 
he had no business whatever meddling in foreign affairs, but did so with consistent calamity. From the start, Wilson wrote, for example, quotes, we were up against the fundamental difficulty that Czechoslovakia had no business to exist as it was. This was referring to 1938, the time when Wilson, who you remember had no official role at all in foreign policy, was flying to meet Hitler secretly at his mountain hideaway. They were going to, quote, clarify matters between themselves over the surrender of much of Czechoslovakia to Germany. The aim, Wilson explained, had been, quotes, to seek reasonable agreements with all European powers. But of course, he did not mean Czechoslovakia. He later wrote that Hitler, quotes, had an extraordinary amount of political wisdom. The problem, of course, was that Wilson had no political wisdom at all. No wonder Chamberlain was completely at sea. Had they had any inkling what they were talking about, Chamberlain and Wilson would have worked out that the Czech land they were gifting to the dictator included coal mines and steel mills and two of the largest ironworks in the country. And just a few miles beyond the new German border was the giant Skoda factory at Pozenia. It was one of the largest arms manufacturers in Europe. Certainly it was. Its output alone was almost equal to the entire output of the British arms industry, 1938 to 1939. Pozienia would go on to make a third of the panzer tanks that rolled into France in 1940. And the point was that after Neville Chamberlain and Horace Wilson's free gift to Hitler of much of Czechoslovakia that, quotes, had no right to exist, Pozienia was utterly indefensible. At a stroke, the incorporation of Skoda Pozienia, which predictably came about in 1939, solved virtually all the Germans' problems of free armament. For just a moment, Chamberlain's family had been in the armaments business for generations. You can't tell me he didn't understand the significance of what he was doing. Well, the Soviets understood. Moscow assured the Czechs that the Red Army would intervene to keep Hitler out if the French would assist them. They even stationed a number of their aircraft in the country. But Neville Chamberlain informed the French that he would talk Hitler round and made it clear that he would veto any attempt to permit international intervention under the League of Nations. So the French did nothing, and the Soviets had to withdraw their planes. It left the Czechs completely alone. In 1938, Horace Wilson and Neville Chamberlain sacrificed one of Britain's very best allies without a fight. Head of the British Foreign Office, Alexander Cadogan, fumed that it was, quote, total surrender. President Roosevelt called it, quote, the most terrible, remorseless sacrifice that had ever been demanded of a state. They had also handed over, and we should suggest knowingly sacrificed, any possibility of rearming Britain on equal terms with Hitler. So don't try and tell us, as apologists for Chamberlain will try to tell you, that appeasement was some kind of clever strategy to buy time for the British to rearm. As Wilson had made quite clear, Chamberlain's policy was instead supposed, quote, to avoid war altogether for all time. He and Chamberlain simply claimed that negotiation with Hitler was possible without any noticeable rearmament. Without rearmament. Well, Gladwin Jeb at the Foreign Office, who was later a liberal politician, recalled that, quote, though we had our differences inside the office, there was hardly a Foreign Office official who could swallow this preposterous theory. The sacrifice of Skoda Pozenia anyway blows the buying time for rearmament theory out of the water once and for all. The most charitable characterisation of Neville Chamberlain and Horace Wilson is that they were weak men pushed by London financiers on the one side and the anti-Soviet prejudices of the English aristocracy, the Tory party, British so-called intelligence and the Foreign Office on the other. 
they did not have the wit to stand up to them, let alone Adolf Hitler. The result was that in the face of its well-known and long-standing economic fragility, the Third Reich was able to arm itself unhindered and by 1939 was equipped to launch an aggressive and at first startlingly successful war of conquest. But the events of 1939 suggest that what Chamberlain and Wilson were up to was rather more than that. In February 1939, C, the head of MI6, concluded that Europe would remain at peace and that rumours of war, quotes, were false information spread by Bolsheviks and Jews in their own interests. Well, keeping British intelligence up to its usual standard, huh? the document incidentally turned up in Moscow. As we know, the Cambridge spies were by now reporting everything London did to the Soviets. A month later, completely predictably, Hitler occupied the Skoda tank factory and the rest of Czechoslovakia, so taking 38 battle-ready Czech divisions out of the equation when Britain only had two. By now, the Soviets were planning for what they thought might be a joint Anglo-German attack. Well, you can hardly blame them. By now, it was obvious to everyone that Poland would be next on Hitler's list. It would take the Germans right up to Russia's border. But the British Foreign Secretary, the Etonian Tory Lord Halifax, would not even meet the Soviet ambassador in London, Ivan Maisky, to talk about it. Instead, on the 31st of March 1939, without any warning at all, Chamberlain suddenly issued Poland a guarantee that Britain would defend it. Chamberlain's military chiefs were appalled. There was nothing they could do to defend Poland. As was obvious to any military mind, including those in Berlin, British forces just didn't have the means, the strategy or the plans. Yeah, even Horace Wilson was appalled. The Times on the 1st of April, after a hurried briefing by Cadogan, the Foreign Office head, tried to explain it all away. Uh, the Prime Minister meant, well, well, he must have meant, that he, well, he was guaranteeing um, uh, Polish independence. Yes, that's it. Yeah, that's it. He hadn't, of course, meant to guarantee Poland's present borders. Oh, no, 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 no. Just um, independence of some sort. Well, obviously, of course, don't you know? The truth was that Chamberlain's hand had been forced, not by fear of Hitler, but by fear of Stalin. The very last thing Chamberlain wanted was for Stalin to come in as Poland's protector. In his mind, it would start with the Soviets marching into Polish Białystok and end with the Soviets stealing his house in Belgravia and stealing his shares in ICI. The historian Jonathan Haslam concludes, his commitment to the Poles was less a matter of any sympathy towards Poland. It was rather a means of blocking out the Russians. Wilson remarked, We disliked the Poles. They were an awful nuisance. Very difficult people. In Moscow, even Maxim Maximovich Litvinov, the People's Commissar for Foreign Affairs, and by a very long way the most pro-British of the Politburo, was coming to think that the British plan was actually to precipitate a Soviet-German war. Quotes, Chamberlain is counting on us to resist the occupation of the Baltic area and expecting that this will lead to the Soviet-German clash he has been hoping for. The Russians now hurriedly got together with the French to propose a joint pact, including all the nations from the Baltic to the Black Sea and anyone else who would come in, committing themselves to defend Poland and Romania from German attack. It was the most intelligent possible solution in the circumstances. 
The problem was that the French economy was still completely in ruins and there was very little they could contribute. In the end, stopping Hitler was going to depend on the Russians and the British working together. Well, the plan for the joint pact was sent to the British on the 17th of April 1939. But Rab Butler, Foreign Secretary Halifax's parliamentary undersecretary, that's his assistant, immediately wrote, quote, We have to balance the advantage of a paper commitment by Russia to join in a war on one side against the disadvantage of associating ourselves openly with Russia. What, of course, he meant was trying to explain to his dinner party guests why His Majesty's Conservative government was now talking to the frightful communists. The only point of negotiating with the Russians, Butler then added, was, quotes, simply to placate our left wing in England. And Chamberlain's solution to this dilemma? His response to this most critical moment in European history since 1914 was to do nothing. The Soviet ambassador Ivan Maisky was summoned urgently to Moscow. Poor terrified man having to fly in an aeroplane for the first time. But he had nothing he could report and found Moscow full of rumours of an Anglo-German plot. His friend Litvinov, the long-time advocate of working with the British, was being completely undermined by Chamberlain's silence. The atmosphere in the Kremlin was so tense that Litvinov got into a fistfight in Stalin's office with the new and much more hard-nosed Commissar for Foreign Affairs, Vyacheslav Mikhailovich Molotov. And there's a name to conjure with. On the 3rd of May 1939, Litvinov was sacked from his remaining positions. The British were now sending junior diplomats to talk to Stalin. Some sort of clerk, the Russian leader complained, quotes, who every day presented a new variant printed in advance. They were just wasting his time. Once Maisky had landed safely back in London, the Foreign Secretary, Lord Halifax, lectured him. The pact that Russians were proposing declared Halifax would, quote, scare off other powers whose participation in the peace front is very important. He can, of course, only have been talking about one European power, Nazi Germany. Even so, Chamberlain went on and on delaying. Eleven days after the pact had arrived, one senior foreign official wrote, I cannot help feeling that the real motive for the cabinet's attitude is the desire to enable Germany to expand eastwards at Russian expense if we think it's convenient. To enable Germany to expand eastwards at Russian expense if we think it's convenient. Well, there you have it. By the end of April 1939, rumours began reaching London that Stalin had given up waiting for Chamberlain and was talking directly to the Germans. The British Chiefs of Staff told Chamberlain that there were, quote, very grave military dangers inherent in the possibility of any agreement between Germany and Russia. But what if that Foreign Office official had been right, that Chamberlain's real motive was to enable Germany to expand eastward at Russian expense? He was, by the way, Lawrence Collier, head of the Foreign Office's Northern Department. That was exactly what the Russian Litvinov was also beginning to suspect. And if their hunch is correct, it would throw the whole Chamberlain project of appeasement into quite another light. Yes, it would suggest that Chamberlain might have been content, for example, for Hitler to occupy the Skoda tank factory because it would equip the Third Reich to put an end to what Chamberlain always regarded as the most serious threat to Europe, and that was Soviet Bolshevism. Well, it's a conclusion that historians rightly uncomfortable with conspiracy theories have edged around. 
let's just say that given everything we now know about Chamberlain, it would be surprising if such a thought had not occurred to him, and his record plainly suggests that he didn't do very much to put it out of his mind. On the 8th of May 1939, the British gave yet another vague answer to the Soviet-French plan. Ambassador Ivan Maisky called the British response long, confusing and clumsy. Privately, Chamberlain gushed breathlessly to his sister Hilda that it was all a cunning scheme of his to keep Russia in the background without antagonising her, which of course the Soviets saw through in a moment. He's playing games at this moment of all in the 20th century. Meanwhile, he was lecturing his Labour Party critics that it was of no importance if negotiations with Moscow broke down. Rob Butler, assistant to the Foreign Secretary, said over again that it was difficult for a Conservative government to negotiate an agreement with a Russian communist one. In other words, the Tories would rather fight a world war than be seen talking to the Russian ambassador, Ivan Maisky. Then, on the 24th of May, the nominally Unitarian Chamberlain, who had never shown any interest in organised religion, even uttered the most extraordinary statement. He said that a deal with the Soviets was out of the question because Roman Catholics all over the world were strongly opposed to it. Roman Catholics were strongly <laughs> opposed to it. <laughs> of course, the Pope had signed a concordat with Hitler in 1933. As if Chamberlain cared about Roman Catholics. The words grasping and straws might come to mind. Meanwhile in Moscow, Vyacheslav Mikhailovich Molotov, the Soviet foreign minister, was now in serious discussions with the German ambassador, one Friedrich Werner, Edmund Matthias Johann Bernet, Erich Graf von der Schulenberg. By the middle of June 1939, the American embassy in Moscow was reporting that these Nazi-Soviet talks were progressing. They passed the information straight to the British, whereupon MI6 promptly wrote it off as nonsense. So far as they were concerned, it stood to reason that Hitler could not possibly ever do a deal with Stalin. Chamberlain, of course, agreed. Hitler, he announced, has concluded that we, the British, mean business. You just have to laugh, were it not so serious. Finally, after a pantomime episode in which Horace Wilson tried to do a back-channel peace deal with a junior German minister who happened to be visiting London for a whaling conference... Chamberlain agreed to send a proper delegation to meet Stalin to discuss the Soviet peace plan. Well, we say a proper delegation, but Chamberlain did not appoint a government minister, nor in fact a senior diplomat, nor even a ranking military officer. Instead, he selected a retired and rather obscure and extravagantly named admiral, Sir Reginald Aylmer Ranfley Plunkett, only Earl Drax. Now, he didn't give Plunkett only Earl Drax powers to agree anything, and for fear of giving the old admiral's mission too much importance, he wasn't flown to Moscow, nor even indeed put aboard a modern warship. At one point, General Hastings Ismay, Secretary of the Committee for Imperial Defence and always incidentally known as Pug, joked that the Prime Minister was going to send the old boy to Moscow on a bicycle. On the 5th of August 1939, the old Admiral Plunkett Ernley Earl Drax was at last put aboard the 10-year-old HMS Exeter, which had a cruising speed of just 14 knots. At the same time, Lord Kemsley, owner of the Sunday Times, was flown to Berlin by Horace Wilson and Foreign Secretary Lord Halifax to meet senior Nazis. At dinner in Berlin, Lady Kemsley was heard to confide, quotes, that only Jews would benefit from war between Germany and England. Meanwhile, across town in Berlin, the German Foreign Minister Ribbentrop was agreeing the final terms with the Soviets. 
Admiral Sir Reginald, oh, let's just call him that, finally reached Moscow on the 12th of August 1939. Now that's 17 weeks after the Russian and French proposal had been sent to London. It took the Russians the whole of two days to conclude that the Admiral's mission was all a deliberate British waste of time. He hadn't even brought official credentials with him to present. Just over a week later, on the 23rd of August, Ribbentrop flew to Moscow and signed the Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact with Molotov. Stalin told Molotov that he would much rather have signed an agreement with the so-called democratic countries. And we now know that Stalin seriously rated perhaps overrated, the military capability of the British Empire. But given Chamberlain's insulting and pointless delays, let alone the appearance in Moscow of the old admiral, the Soviets really had no choice. Agreement with Britain and France might have bought peace. The Nazi-Soviet pact did nothing more than delay a very certain war. But it bought Moscow a few more months to rebuild its military forces. They had no choice but to sign. On the 1st of September 1939, with the Soviet deal in his pocket, Hitler invaded Poland from the West. And Stalin, abiding by the terms of the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact, took the rest of Poland from the East. Well, it was better that than face the possibility of the Third Reich advancing any closer to the borders of Russia. Chamberlain's entire policy was in ashes. He had not, after all, cleverly engineered a war between Germany and Stalin, enabling Germany, quotes, to expand eastward at communist Russia's expense. No, instead he was presented with the stark possibility of a carve-up of Europe between Hitler and Stalin. Grossly unprepared as Britain was under his premiership, Chamberlain was compelled on the 3rd of September 1939 to declare war. Stalin would subsequently occupy Finland, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania in an attempt to build a buffer against German invasion, which he correctly regarded as inevitable. Well, so much for Chamberlain's attempt to keep Russia out of Europe, hmm? And Hitler would of course invade Norway, Denmark, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Belgium and France. So much for the notion that Adolf Hitler knew that Mr Chamberlain in his starched collar and bowler hat meant business. But the scandals were not over once war had begun. From the smart restaurants of Basel to the fashionable beaches of Eshteril outside Lisbon and the shady offices of Buenos Aires, the deals between American and British businessmen and the representatives of the Third Reich very much continued as before. As we shall see next time in the concluding episode of this series at the History Café. There are nearly a hundred podcasts at the History Cafe, all of them still as new as the day they were recorded. Go to our website, historycafe.org, and you can get a rundown on the research we've done and plenty of leads to follow if you still want more. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every other platform you can think of. Just look out for History Cafe Podcast with John and Penelope. If it's your thing, follow us on Instagram and what used to be Twitter at History Cafe Pod. And ask your friends to join us too.